All righty, let's go ahead and open up our Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 1, and we're going to pick it up where we left off uh, in verse 11. And just to recap just a little bit, you know, of course, Paul is writing this to Timothy, who's the pastor of Ephesus. And Timothy's a young pastor. We don't know exactly how old, but we know he's in his early 30s, somewhere around here. And what Paul is doing is he's giving him direction as to how he ought to behave himself, as we read last time, in the house of God. I want you to keep in mind that as we go through Timothy, what he's talking about is how the church is to be structured. And especially when we get to the bottom of chapter 2 tonight, because some would call it controversial. I don't. It's not controversial at all. It's the directive of God, and this is the way we should be doing it. Now, you're going to find out that a lot of churches, be them denominational or non-denominational, have abandoned what the Word of God teaches. But that's, that's not for us to say. We just do what the Word of God says, and it's like this is the way it should be done. And God gives great reason for it. So we're going to be looking at that. But Paul left off, and we talked a little bit, you know, there in verse 11, he says, according to the glorious gospel, he was talking about being called an apostle, and that the glorious gospel of the blessed God which was committed to my trust, he says. So Paul said that instead of bringing people into bondage to the law, which could never make men righteous, could never make men free, could never give them a clean conscience, and could never render them perfect before a holy God. He said, we preach this glorious gospel. This is the gospel that we preach. Jesus Christ lived vicarious for us. He died a perfect death for us, rose a perfect resurrection, giving us hope of eternal life, and then sets at the right hand of the Father, making intercession for the saints, for you and me, on a continual basis, and that's great hope for you and me. Thus Paul, knowing and preaching these things, said, if God be for us, who can be against us? You can walk in confidence and walk in victory in Jesus Christ, knowing that it is the blood of Christ, according to 1 John, that continually cleanses me from sin, because his righteousness has been imputed to me, and I had an interesting question, and, and somebody who had asked me, and they said, well, does the imputation, was this a one-time event? No. Did it happen at one time? Well, yes, it happened on the cross. There was a double imputation. It happened. But what I want you to realize is that the imputation of Christ's righteousness is continual flowing to you. Thus, in 1 John, it says that the blood of Christ continually cleanses me from sin. And so that double imputation of your sins being imputed to him and his righteousness being imputed to you by faith alone, that's a continual thing. Praise the Lord. So I can walk in victory at any time, even in the midst of my failures, knowing that it is Christ's righteousness, it is his obedience, it is his everything that the Lord is judging me on. <laughs> that's the good news that's the glorious gospel Paul said this is what we preach this is what we preach but there are those who of course wanted to bring them back into the bondage of the law the rules the regulations touch not taste not those type of things look at verse 12 he says I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who hath enabled me if you're taking notes underline enable he's enabled me for that he counted me faithful putting me into the ministry now, where it says faithful, he counted me faithful, I want you to think of it this way, full of faith. Anytime you see the word faithful, think of full of faith. He counted me faithful putting me in the ministry, but he enabled me. We make a serious mistake in the body of Christ when we think that God's looking for those with ability. 
we, we make a mistake. Yet, within the church, that is so often the case, isn't it? You know, so often when there is a, a position to be filled, what do we do with the church? We form a committee. <laughs> we form a committee, and we begin to look for those who have the greatest ability. You know, if we're trying to fill the pulpit, we have a pulpit committee. And we begin to accumulate resumes, much like a corporation. I ran a corporation for quite some time. Hired a lot of people. And when I needed somebody, I looked for resumes. And at that particular time, I have to admit, I looked for those who were the most qualified. Those who were the sum cum laude, is that what it is? You know, those who esteemed are highly honored, you see. You want those guys who graduated at the top of their class. But this is totally contrary to the way that God does things. That's the thing that, we're, that sets us off. Because, see, that's, that happens not only in denominations do it that way. Non-denominational churches as well fall into this trap. We begin to look for those who have the ability, you see. Those who seem to be good at what they do. When we see God's choices often... And we see those whom God has blessed and called. And sometimes it just absolutely flabbergasted. We go, what? what did, why would? No. Seriously? But yet that's what God does. God has chosen the foolish things of the world, the Bible says, to confound the wise. Matter of fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26, here's what the Apostle Paul wrote. He says, for you see your calling, brethren. How that not many wise men, according to the flesh, not many noble are called. But yet today, in churches around the world, we look for the noble. We look for the wise. We look for the mighty. We want those who graduated at the top of their class, you see. But when you look at Jesus and the disciples whom he chose, who did he choose? He chose fishermen. He chose tax collectors. He chose the dregs of society. You see your calling, brother. Not many wise men according to the flesh. Not many noble are called. Well, that's still true today. It doesn't matter who's standing behind the pulpit, you see. We'll be talking about that here in a little bit as far as ordination goes. God's ways are not our ways. I thank God that he's chosen the foolish things of the world. That's great hope for you and me. Because so often I've had people come to me and say, well, Doug, I, want, you know, I would love to do something for the Lord. I'd love to be in a ministry, but I can't do what you do. I said, brother, I can't do what I do. I mean that sincerely. When I was a young man before, I know people, you know, they've seen me on stage, they've listened to me preach, they've heard me on radio for years, and they say, oh, man, don't get that boy talking. Now, I'm telling you right now, because that boy could talk for hours, as you well know. <laughs> But I was a shy kid. I was very shy. If my mother was standing here, she would say, oh, yeah, I'll tell you. I remember one of the first talent shows, and I say that very lightly because I was like 12 or 13. And my mother was a typical mother, loved me, and thought that everything I did was great, which it was not. Drug me up to this huge talent show, and I was scared to death. And I had this friend of mine who very well may be watching tonight. Randy, if you're watching, you know. I hate to bring up this story, but we were 12, 13 years old at the time. And I was, of course, a short, pudgy. I used to buy my clothes in the Husky section. I can't help. You know, and, and I was a chubby little kid. And, and Randy was six foot two. 
I think, at 13. Yeah, and about that big around. And so we're playing guitar. We get up on this stage, and of course, the guy who was leading the, and this was a, a huge thing. And we get up there, and the guy says, looks like Wayne Newton and String Bean. <laughs> I said, thanks. That'll give you confidence, you know what I'm saying? So that was a total bomb that night, you know. But my point is, is that I was a very shy kid. Had no aspirations of doing anything, really, other than just entertaining myself. But God isn't looking for your ability. Because if, if you think that he is, then you're going to miss an opportunity. What God is looking for is your availability. He wants those who are available. Paul says, God found me faithful. Putting me, He enabled me. He gave me the ability to do what I do. I love what Paul's assessment of his own preaching was. He says, when I came to you, brethren, I came not with excellency of speech. He wasn't a great preacher in his own mind. I'm sure that his hearers had a much different opinion of him. Why? Because they were hearing the Holy Spirit. Because that's what it says, that he came in demonstration of the Holy Ghost. You know, often when we begin to do things, we can, we can get good at something. I mean, I don't care whether it's playing music or whether it's doing radio or television or whatever it is. You can get good at it in your flesh. But there's no substitute for the power of the Holy Spirit. And when somebody hears it, they understand that anointing because people are affected by it. It's not you that they're affected by. It's the Spirit of Christ that's working in you. But all you have to do is make yourself available. That's all you have to do. No qualifications other than what we're going to get to required. As far as pastors go. Now, as far as just being used by the Lord, all you've got to be is available and faithful. Full of faith. That's it. Look at verse 13. Who was before, Paul says about himself, a blasphemer? Everybody goes, well, you don't know my past, Doug. God could never use me. Really? Look at Paul's past. He was a blasphemer, a persecutor, an injurious person. But I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was exceeding abundant with faith and of love, which is in Christ Jesus. Paul had persecuted the church of Jesus Christ. He had laid waste to it with great zeal. He searched for those who had put their faith in Christ. He chased them into far cities and dragged them back and had them in prison, and some of them he even had put to death. You remember when he stood and held the coats of those who stoned Stephen and consented unto his death. Paul's past wasn't pretty. Most of our past aren't pretty. We look and we go, well, you know, it wasn't as bad as Paul. The fact is, is within Christ, within God, and the way he does things, it doesn't really matter how bad or how good your past was. We'll talk about that here in a little bit. We're all born wretched, gang. There is none righteous, no, not one. And so we need Jesus, and Paul needed Jesus just the same. Look at verse 15. He said, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation." That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. Now Paul says this is worthy of all acceptance. Accepted, it's worthy that Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief, he said. The simple, unadulterated gospel. The good news, that's what it means. 
that Jesus came to save sinners. Oh, if we could just get back to that, if we could just get our fingers around that spiritual truth. Jesus came to save sinners. Turn with me, if you will. Let's read Ephesians chapter 2. I want to show you something. Or more accurately, I want to remind you of something. Look at Ephesians chapter 2. I'm going to start in verse 1. And of course, this is the Apostle Paul himself, once again, writing to the Ephesians church. And he says, and you hath he quickened. If you're using a different, you might say made alive, which is what it means. And you has he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. Underline the word were. Wherein in time past, underline the word past, you walked according to the course of this world. According to the prince of the power of the air, talking about Satan, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. He's talking about those who are unbelievers. Among whom also we all had our conversation in time past in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath even as others. Listen. Outside of Jesus, Paul says that we were all the children of wrath. We were going to incur the wrath of God. God is going to judge sinners, gang. He's going to. But it's not his will to. God is always looking to get around that. It's not God's will that any would perish, the Bible tells us, but that all would come to repentance. Change your mind about Jesus Christ. And what that means for you, humble yourself before the Lord, you know, and allow him to be the one who raises you up, imputing his righteousness to you. Engulf yourself, allow him to lavish his love upon you, and your life will be changed, I guarantee it. And so Paul, speaking of those who at one time, all of us had our conversation in that, and were by nature the children of wrath, these and as others, look at verse 4, but God who is rich in mercy... For his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath made us alive together with Christ, by grace you are saved, and hath raised us up together and made us to sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness towards us through Christ Jesus. For by grace are you saved. Through faith, and that not of yourself, it is a gift of God. It is not of works, lest any man should boast. So we've got nothing to boast over. We are all born into this world wretched, and I humble myself before the Lord, and I acknowledge that He is worthy, and He is Lord of lords and King of kings, and I understand that without Him, I am altogether utterly lost. But as I come to Christ and I put my faith in him, oh, he bestows upon me that which I could not do for myself. He achieves for me what I could not do, regardless of how hard I try. I couldn't make myself perfect. I was talking with an older fellow today. I want you to change the way you think about this, gang. Because as those of you who went through Hebrews with you, you know that it was the Lord's purpose through Jesus Christ as our great high priest that when he offered that sacrifice in heaven to make you perfect before God. Why? Because perfection is required to be in heaven. You have to be perfect. Everybody goes, well, I'm not perfect. I'm just not perfect, you know. I was talking with an older fellow today, and I, I know what they mean. What they really mean is I'm not flawless. Well, I know that. 
God definitely knows that. <laughs> but the beauty of the gospel is that God calleth those things that be not as though they were. And so I had somebody ask me, they said, so what you're saying then, Doug, is that God, you know, he, now, once I'm in Jesus, he sees me as righteous. I said, you know, no. No, because that, that, there's an implication there that he just sees you that way, but you're really not. No. Once Christ has imputed his righteousness to you, you are. Thus the scriptures tell us, and Peter said, that even as he is, so are we in this present world. It isn't that just God sees you as righteous. Brother, you are. You are. Now, the reality is I have to look in the mirror. I understand that in this moment, I am not flawless. <laughs> I know it. My wife definitely knows it. I'm not flawless, but I am perfect in Christ. Everything that is needed to make me perfected, justified, sanctified, holy, is mine through Jesus Christ because he has imputed that to us by faith alone. And so I can walk in victory and know that I am always right where God wants me to be, even if I fall, even if I stumble. Thus the scriptures tell us that, yea, a righteous man stumbleth seven times, but he will rise again. Why? The Lord is able to make him stand. The Lord is able to make him stand. The steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord, and he delighteth in his way. And though he fall, he will not utterly be cast down, for the Lord upholdeth him with his hand. All the world will point their finger at you when you take a fall. The world will condemn you, maybe even the church, but not God, not Jesus. When you stand before the throne and you stand there, you will be clothed in his righteousness, not your own. And Jesus will reach out. He'll say, this is one of mine. This is one of mine. So walk in confidence. Walk in victory. You can. It's not something that you have to achieve. It's been achieved for you through Jesus Christ. This is what Paul preached. By grace are you saved. In the Gospel of John, chapter 3, you don't have to turn there. I'm going to read it for you. In verse 17 through 19, he says, For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world. So often we think that is what God came to do. No, Jesus said, I came not to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already, because he hath not believed on the only name of the begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation, that light is coming to the world, and men love darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. Jesus has done for us, gang, what we could not do for ourselves. Like I said, he has made us righteous. He has sanctified us. He has justified us. He has set us aside. He has anointed us. He has poured out his blessing upon us. Paul said, this is a faithful saying worthy of all acceptation. Christ came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. I think it's interesting that Paul says, of whom I am chief. If you're taking notes, you ought to make note of that. He doesn't say of whom I was. Do you see that? He said this as an apostle, that Christ came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. Now, I have no doubt that Paul was looking at his past because he just mentioned it to us. He had wreaked havoc on the church. He had done many despicable things in his life. Murder. Who knows how many times? Many, many hurtful things. He called himself injurious. 
I have no doubt that when he said that as a sinner, he said he was chief. I have no doubt that that's what he was looking to. But I think what it was is Paul understood his own wretchedness. We all need to understand our own wretchedness, not so that we can walk in self-abasement. No, quite the contrary. We need to recognize our own wretchedness because it keeps me dependent upon the righteousness of someone else, and that is Jesus Christ. It reminds me that I need to be clothed all the time in his righteousness so that I can walk in victory in Jesus Christ. Because, boy, if I just focus on my wretchedness, you see, without focusing on the righteousness of Christ, well, that comes depressing. That becomes self-abasing. Then I'd be, oh, I'm just a rotten sinner, you know. And next thing you know, you're not doing anything. And that's a miserable place to be. That's not what we're talking about. Paul says, of whom I am. He understood his place. He understood his dependency upon Jesus. And that's really what we're talking about. Total dependency on Jesus. That's where God wants us. Look at verse 16. He says, how be it for this cause I obtained mercy. That in me first Jesus Christ might show forth all long suffering for a pattern to them which should hereafter believe on him to life everlasting. Every time you see the word everlasting in the Bible, underline it. Remind yourself of that. Every time you see the word eternal, underline that. Because it means what it means. Everlasting means what? Everlasting. Eternal means eternal. Forever means forever. You know, so often we get those confused people who, <laughs> some of the most craziest preaching I've ever heard, and it's like, but what part of everlasting don't you guys understand? What part of forever don't you get? People say, well, I don't read the Greek. What you need is an English dictionary. You don't need a Greek one. You need an English dictionary. Forever means forever, eternal, everlasting. I love that. Paul said it was for this cause that he obtained mercy to show the long-suffering of Christ as a pattern to those who would believe on Jesus Christ's everlasting life. In other words, Paul was saying that because of his own wretchedness and how bad his past had been, the Lord still showed him mercy and put him into the ministry. Huh. And if God would do that for him, he certainly would do that for you. I mean, how bad could your past be? Well, I know some of you, it could be pretty bad. I know mine is. But I have nothing on Paul, not even close. And yet the Lord uses, you know, often you've heard me say that God uses imperfect, and I mean flawed vessels, to do his perfect will. You know, once again, it's an ability thing. Just make yourself available to the Lord. Look at verse 17. Now unto the king eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. It's kind of his benediction at this point. This charge I commit unto thee, son Timothy, according to the prophecies which were, uh, went before thee, that thou from them, that's prophecies, might war a good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience, which some having put away concerning faith have made shipwrecked, of whom is Hymenius and Alexander, whom I've delivered unto Satan, that they might or may learn not to blaspheme. Speaking of the term prophecy here, you know, Paul tells Timothy that he wants him to war a good warfare based on the prophecies that were given to him. As a matter of fact, in another place we're going to get to it, he tells Timothy to stir up the gift, you know, that were, was in him by the laying on of hands of the presbyter, you know. 
that were given to him by prophecy by laying on of hands. As we went through the book of Acts, we saw many times where the Holy Spirit spoke through another brother or one of the apostles a word of prophecy directing the church as to what direction it should go. I don't really think anything has changed, gang. The only thing is, is that often we don't allow for those type of actions to happen. In my ministry and in my own personal uh, history, I've had many times when we have been in prayer sessions and I've had many times people would just, I remember one was kind of the most shocking, uh, kind of, it was actually kind of scary, scary. I was in California, I went out there to baptize some people, uh, actually it was my brother. And uh, he'd given his life to the Lord. And, and, uh, but I remember, you know, I was a young, ambitious. I didn't know nothing. I just knew Jesus, man. I just wanted to serve the Lord. And I went out there to, to baptize him. And, uh, you know, and, and, and so I wound up teaching a Bible study. And there was quite a few people came. And, you know, back then, uh, I was, I don't know how else to explain. I was kind of one of those preachers who just cut them and let them bleed. You know what I mean? I, it wasn't, I know the summer going, man, nothing's changed. That's not true. I've mellowed in my old age. I really have. But listen, you know what I mean? I, I just, you know, so I, anyway, make a long story short. We got in this prayer session, and all of a sudden, while I had my eyes closed, all of a sudden I felt this somebody, I knew it was a woman after, but grabbed me by the throat. I mean, literally grabbed me by the throat. And she started prophesying over me and was telling me that, you know, thousands of people would hear me. And, and, uh, and the funny part was, was I had upset this woman earlier in the study because, it was funny because I played, I played my guitar, you know, and, and I was, there was like 50 or 60 people. It was, a, it was a big crowd for a house. You know, this was in a house, and I was shocked at that. But anyway, I had played music, and, and uh, you know, we had a great time of worship. But then when I start, started preaching, <laughs> did I say I was young? I told you I was young, right? And, uh, yeah, not very compassionate. But anyway, this woman had come up to me, and she goes, you know, when you sing, she goes, I can feel the Holy Spirit. She goes, but when you preach, she goes, it hurts. <laughs> and she didn't say it as a, you know, it wasn't a compliment. You know what I mean? It wasn't a compliment, and there was probably a lot of truth in it. And, uh, but I wasn't ready to accept it. But anyway, she, she was prophesying over me. And you know, a lot of the things that she said, and at the time, as a young man, I remember thinking at the time, Lord, just forgive her. She, this woman knows not what she says only to find out that a lot of things she said absolutely came to pass. So we need to make room, you see, for the gift of prophecy to be spoken. And so often we don't make time for it. And, you know, we call them afterglows, you know, where we would just come together in prayer and some worship and just make room for the gifts of the Holy Ghost. Because I firmly believe in them, and I, I've seen them, too much, and they are in operation in my own life, but it's a very powerful thing, and Paul points Timothy to that here, and he reminds him of that. And then he mentions Hymenius and Alexander, which is interesting, because he says, you know, that he had delivered them to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Now, what did he mean by that? Man, I wish I knew. <laughs> I don't know a Bible teacher out there. Now, I've got an idea. And the only verse I can really give to you really is in 1 Corinthians because every time I read this, I always jump to 1 Corinthians 5.5 5 because that's what it reminds me of. Of course, Paul the Apostle writing to the Corinthian church, which was pretty messed up. Now, when Paul says what I'm going to read to you, he's talking about the issue of fornication. And it had come up in the church, and actually it was a matter of incest. There was a guy who was actually having a sexual relationship with his stepmother. 
and, and Paul says, man, he goes, even the Gentiles don't even know what to call. They don't even have a word for this kind of stuff. And so Paul was pretty, uh, pretty upset with them because the church had allowed it to continue. And so he writes in, in, in 1 Corinthians 5, 5, he says that he had delivered such a one who had done such a thing unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh that the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. That's an interesting passage. And I've had many people ask me, well, what does he mean by that? I said, I think he means exactly what he said. You see, the Bible says that the Spirit of the Lord encampeth round about them that fear him. Even in a statement like this, that Paul says, I delivered him unto Satan, you know, for the destruction of the flesh. But for what purpose, Paul? He says, so that the Spirit may be saved in the day of Jesus Christ. The bottom line in allowing somebody, and basically what he's saying is that he's turned him over, I believe this is what he's saying, is that he turned him over to his own desire. You know, the Bible told us that when we studied through Romans, remember? It says that because they were, you know, doing those things which were ungodly, God gave them over to a reprobate mind. Just do what you want to do. You know, go ahead. Let me know how that is. You know. And when they come to the end of their self, the bottom line is reconciliation because that's really what we want to do, even to brothers and sisters who sin in the Lord. You know, the Bible tells us in Galatians that those who sin, you know, or those who are spiritual should restore such a one who have taken a fall. You know, we want to restore people. We want to bring them back into right fellowship with God and with us as a church. And so really it's the bottom line there. And, uh, but it's a hard passage and you know you're free to uh, take that any way you want to I, I like I said many Bible scholars aren't even sure as to what exactly but I do think that you know just throwing it out there when you think of Job you know the Bible says there was a hedge that God had put around Job well the Bible tells us that the angel of the Lord encamps around about all of us and I thank God for that. I pray for that all the time in my own life because I know that I've got a target really bad, huge on my back, and the enemy hates me, and he hates you. But those who have a bigger mouth, he hates really much. And so he's out to get us, you know. And, he, and uh, I, I mean, I don't walk in fear of that, but I certainly covet prayers uh, for the Lord's protection in my life because I know how the enemy operates. And so I think that what Paul was talking about here was simply removing that. And giving them over to that, so why? So they would be destroyed? No. So they would come to their senses. So that they would learn not to blaspheme and come back. Reconcile. You know? Come back. That's always the bottom line. Now we get to 1 Timothy chapter 2. And we're moving right along. <laughs> Maybe we'll finish this tonight. 1 Timothy chapter 2. Let's look at verse 1. Paul says, I exhort thee therefore... That first of all, supplications, prayers, intercessions, giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings and for all that are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. Paul exhorts Timothy here that first of all, he says, that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men. I do find it interesting that Paul exhorts young Timothy to keep the first things first. And what's the first thing? Prayer. So often in the body of Christ, gang, and, and, and whether you're sitting here or you're, you're watching or listening some other way, maybe in the church where you're serving, you, you'll find that a lot of programs are developed. And a lot of times, not a, not a word of prayer is said before we do it. We just get together and kind of throw ideas out, you know. Nobody praying. But Paul says here that that should be the first thing that we do. 
He said prayers and supplications and giving of thanks and those types. The prayer should be the first thing. Keep the first things first. Always, always start with prayer, regardless of what it is, and especially those of our leadership. You know, you look at the disrespect that is leveled against the presidency of this United States now, because he does say here that for kings, of course, we don't have a king, we have a president. Now listen, in the army, this is why, you know, guys, of, those of us who have served in the military, maybe have a heads up on this type of thing. You don't have to like your captain. You just have to respect the rank that he has. You don't have to like him. You have to respect the office. And there is an element of respect. And so often, you know, the, the people, and of course the world, as we get farther and farther and closer to the second coming or to the rapture of the church, you're going to see it get worse. It's going to get a lot worse. And we're watching it. The common sense going out the window, the craziness, the level of disrespect. That's why we pray for kings and for those in authority, especially within the body of Christ. You know, we, we, we need to do that. That needs to be the first thing. For this is good, verse 3, and acceptable in the sight of God, our Savior, who will have all men to be saved and to whom unto knowledge, or excuse me, and to come to the knowledge of the truth. We're told in 2 Peter 3, 9, the Lord is not slack concerning his promise. What promise is he talking about? He's talking about his coming, his second coming. As some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all would come to repentance. God wants people to come to repentance. What does repentance mean? Repentance, as most of you know, who's been studying with me for any time, it means to change your mind. You know, so often you hear people say, well, it means to do a 180. You know, turn away, turn from your sin. Well, it kind of means that, but more than that, it means to change your mind. Because, listen, so often all we want people to do is quit doing what you're doing. You know, if you want to reform a bank robber, you just want him to quit robbing banks, especially if your money's in the one he's robbing. You just want him to quit it. You know, you stop doing that. You know, you, you see a guy who's an alcoholic, you just want him to quit drinking or quit doing drugs, or quit sleeping around. Or he, we, the church is so fixated on trying to fix physical ailments that we miss the point. The word repentance means to change your mind. Because if you change your mind about your relationship with the Lord and about who Jesus really is, guess what happens? Your actions change. See, you can put the cart before the horse. That's called religion. Because then it just becomes a self-help program. If you ever want to know what that looks like, turn in Joel Osteen. That's a self-help program. Now, is he nice to listen to? I'll never forget the first time I ever listened to him. I loved it. Loved it. Made me feel good inside, kind of warm and fuzzy. You know, it did. I thought, wow, him and Tony Robbins got, you know, they're almost two birds of a feather. And the more I listened to him, I'm going, this boy wouldn't know two verses if they were backed up against each other in front of him. He doesn't even know. And the funny part is he stands in the beginning and goes, this is our Bible. We have what it says we have. What's it say? That's what I want. Nobody's asking. 17,000 people sitting there. And he goes, it has what I say I have. What's it say? He probably can't tell you. I've heard that boy misquote the Bible so bad it isn't even funny. But he feels good. Feels good. We need to get back to just teaching the Word of God. Regardless 
<laughs> of what, of what, you know, political correctness. You know, we just want people to have the Word of God because those guys are, what's the word I'm looking for? They're, they're just, you know, Paul says that they would have, the church would wind up having itching ears and, and heap teachers to themselves. These guys are uh, motivational speakers. That's, that's the word I'm looking for. They're motivational speakers. I don't doubt for a moment that the stuff that they're saying they actually believe. The problem is it just isn't biblical. It's not biblical. And you hear, it's like, I, I listen to Sirius XM. I listen to, you know, Fox News on there. I listen to radio. And Osteen has his own. <laughs> and I, I don't mean to harp on Osteen. I, really, I'm not, I hope I'm not offending you guys. I'm just giving you the facts, man. But he's got his own XM radio station now. It's Joel Osteen Radio. And I'm going, dear Lord. And the, and the commercial for it is he's going, you have what the Lord says you have. Your head's been down and God's got, I am the glory to lift over your head. And I'm going, man. And in the background, all you can hear is pe like people cheering. And you know it's a commercial. I used to do radio, so I know how commercials are put together. And these people are just cheering. I'm going, well, yeah, because he's not giving them nothing else but. You know, the Bible says, know ye therefore the goodness and the severity of the Lord. Oh, man, you know, there's nothing, there's nothing more uplifting than a good grace-filled sermon, I have to admit. And nobody likes preaching that anymore. I love going through Romans. Man, I love Romans. That's why when you listen, to all the responses that I get most of the time is when people send me emails and like, oh, man, brother, I've been listening to your teaching on Romans. Man, I was so, I'm going, me too. I was inspired by it. But what'd you think about Hebrews? What'd you think about my teaching through Acts? Now, wait till you, we haven't got to the good ones. Know ye therefore the goodness and the severity of the Lord. Now, goodness upon those of us that believe, nothing but good. But not so much on those that don't. And we make a grave error when we don't teach the full counsel of God. And really, that's all we want to do. But God's not slack concerning his promise, as Peter says. As men, but God is not willing that any would perish, but come to the knowledge of the truth. Even in Ezekiel in the Old Testament, in chapter 33, verse 11, he says, Say unto them, As I live, saith the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn ye, turn ye from your evil ways, for why will you die, O house of Israel? Even the Lord says, Why would you do that? Turn. Turn to him. God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. The gospel is a great thing. Let's go ahead and move on. Let's look at verse 5. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Oh, man, I love this verse. What, an, what, an, what a powerful statement. There's one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. It made me think of Job. I couldn't help it. You go to Job and... You know the story of Job, and he had all these afflictions. He had lost everything. His properties, his kids, and oh my, he was, you know, he, he had, his children were gone, his health was gone. He was wallowing in the mire, wallowing in misery, covered with boils, lying in ashes, and here comes his loving wife and says, why don't you just curse God and die? Yeah. Then he has his great friends that come along to comfort him, you know. And Eliphaz was one of them, a great, great comforter. 
He says, just get right with God and it'll be okay. Oh man, what a pal. What a buddy. Those are the kind of guys you want when you're really down, you know? I love what Job says to him, though. Job says, who am I that I could get right with God? I look to the heavens and I see the glory of the Lord. I, know, I understand the vastness and how great he is, how small I am. I look here, I look there, I look all around, and I know he's here, but I can't see him. I have no one to stand between me and him, not a daysman to put his hand on him and his hand on me. Job knew what the problem was, gang. He knew it. What was the problem? Job says, God is so great, the finite versus the infinite. I am finite. He is infinite. The chasm that is between us is so immense. I need a daysman. I need someone who can put his hand on him and his hand on me and arbitrate the problem. How can I stand before the Lord, Job said? How can I confess my sin? How can I even justify my way before him? I need a daysman. He understood it. And the cry of Job is answered when Paul says, There is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Jesus is our daysman. He stands between God and man. And he reaches to God and he reaches down to us and he touches us both because he himself is the second in the Trinity. The Father, the Son, the Holy Ghost, these three are one. And he brings us together in the Lord. He is our daysman. I love the story of Job. It is all a picture of Christ. Even when you go through the book of Ruth, you know, he is our kinsman redeemer. Everything is about Jesus. Job saw the problem. Job understood it. Paul answered it. I love that. You can't make that up. You know, he understood we need a daysman. We need that mediator. Now, there are those in Christendom who have tried to come up with their own. Call him a bridge builder. That word actually translated as pope means bridge builder, if you didn't know that. But there's only one bridge builder, and that's Jesus. There's only one that can stand between you and God. John chapter 1, you don't have to turn there, I'm just going to read it for you. Verse 2, he says, the same was in the beginning with God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory. The glory is the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus is the mediator. What does that mean? It means that if you want to come to God, gang, you have to go through Jesus. You can't come to me. You can't go to the Pope, you can't go to a priest, you can't pray to Mary. You have to go to Jesus. This is what it means. Jesus even said it himself in 14.6. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man cometh unto the Father but by me. Some people say, well, that's exclusionary. Well, yes, it is. Why? Because he is God. 
Shall the thing formed say to him that formed me, why hast thou made me thus? His ways are not our ways, but his ways are past our finding out. But you know what? You're better off if you just do what the master says. Why? Because your good is what he has at heart. It's your longevity. It's your, you know, it's your building up that the Lord is really concerned with. He loves you. He cares for you. He has done all for you and me. Look at verse 6. He says, who gave himself a ransom for all. For all. To be testified in due time. Paul declared in the book of Romans that we are all sinners. There's none righteous, no, not one. Romans 3.10. Thus we are totally unable to redeem ourselves. There is nothing that we can do to save ourselves. There is nothing I can do to make myself righteous or to atone for my past guilt. I can't do it, neither can you. People like to grade on a scale, you see. You know that. You know, we've got lesser sins and great big sins. That guy over there is a tiny sinner and there's a big sinner over there. God doesn't grade on a scale. Outside of Jesus, sin is sin. People have said, well, what sin's going to send me to hell? Well, I'll be honest with you. The fact of unbelief is, according to the Scriptures, is what's going to send anybody to hell. God doesn't send you there. It's a personal choice. Make no mistake. You know, Jesus said, and this is the condemnation, that men love darkness more than they love light. So often, even within the church, people love darkness more than they love light. That's the sad part. Well, what is light? His word. His word is the light. It's a light unto my feet, the Bible says. Thy word is a light unto my feet. You know. It lights my path. Look at verse 7. Whereunto I am ordained a preacher and an apostle. If you're taking notes, underline the word ordained. I speak the truth in Christ, and I lie not, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and verity, or the word truth. Paul says he was ordained a preacher. Paul said that unto he was ordained a preacher and an apostle. This was God's doing. It was the work of the Holy Spirit, not of men. Ultimately, my friends, it is God that ordains. When you look at the book of Titus, and we will get there, he tells Titus, he says, I sent you to Crete to sit in order the things which were lacking in the church and to ordain elders in every church if, and he gives a list of things that need to be evident in the life of those elders. If any be, the husband of one wife, he goes on and on. Same list is found in 1 Timothy chapter 3. We'll be getting to that next week. I think people misunderstand ordination. Ordination is by God. Ordination, ordination comes from the Lord alone, period. Even though Paul tells Titus to ordain elders, he's giving him a list of the things that God says has to be evident in the life of a man that is being ordained. Thus, I've always come up with the saying, and I'll give it to you for free, the ordination of any man is only good as the one who ordained him. What do I mean by that? I've seen many people lay hands on other people and call them something that they never were to start with. And they continue in that, and they are totally ineffective in that. You know how many pastors are standing behind pulpits, gang, who have never led anybody personally to Jesus Christ? Happens all the time. I've had them tell me. I've asked them. That's usually the first thing I ask, Pastor. How many people have you ever led to the Lord? Have you ever led anybody personally to Jesus Christ? And I've had way more than my share tell me no. 
How were you ordained? Well, you know, I went to theological seminary. You know, I went to Fuller. I went to Liberty. Or I went to this. I went to that. That's a problem. Because ordination has been lowered, if you will. It's been reduced to a piece of paper. It's been reduced to a piece of paper because somebody gave it to them after they graduated from Bible college or they went through the hoops, you see. Depending upon the denomination and some non-denominations. I mean, ordination has become a ridiculous thing. In some churches, guys ordain themselves. We call it self-ordination. Where'd you get your ordination from? Well, the Lord called me. Well, who verified that? Who witnessed that that was true? Because somebody has to, as Paul was t- will tell us in the next thing. Well, who verified it for Paul? God. <laughs> Paul was an apostle. He wrote two-thirds of the New Testament. Paul's ordination was from God directly. He walked with the Lord. Remember, for three years on the backside of the desert, he talked with him and was taught by the Lord Jesus Christ himself personally. Paul was ordained a preacher and an apostle. Ordination today means almost nothing. It means almost nothing because the way it's done is just not the way the Bible teaches that it should be done. We put too much stock in it. Is a man ordained? You know, once again, how are we going to know whether somebody is really ordained? You'll see the fruit of it. You'll see the fruit of it. You've heard me say, especially when it comes to picking deacons and elders, as we get into the next chapter, you're going to see that as we get into Titus, you're going to see how the Lord chooses deacons and elders. And he gives that list, and it's not prerequisites. These are traits that will be in the life of that person. And I always find it interesting that we have pastors that we put up behind our pulpits, and yet we know nothing about these men. You look at the Catholic Church, look how many babies have been raped and how much pedophilia goes on in that church because those men are not vetted. Do you understand what I'm saying? Because you have to have people who are ordaining people who are walking in the spirit so that they can understand when a person is not right with the Lord. Because if all they're doing is going to college, which is what they do with the priest, or in many denominations, including our own, you jump through the hoops, and all of a sudden we give you a piece of paper that says you're a man of God. Well, I got news for you. That's not what the Lord's going to tell you in the next chapter. That's not what the Bible lays out for us. My question is this. How do I know? You know, if I'm on that pulpit committee, And all I'm looking at is somebody's work resume. Do you realize the Apostle Paul, nobody would have wanted his? If he would have put his uh, his resume together, here's a guy who had served time. Here's a guy who was an ex-murderer. Here's a guy who had been thrown out of just about every synagogue that he preached in, caused more riots than you could shake a stick at. I could see the committee going, yeah, we'll pass on that guy. And yet he's the one the Lord chose. How do I know? If I don't know the man himself, how do I know that he fits what the Bible says? I have to rely then on those who are picking for me, you see. So if the person who's picking my pastor for me isn't right with God either, let me give you a prime example that's got nothing to do with ordination. In textual criticism, something I've studied for many, 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 many years, We have higher and lower textual criticism. I'm not going to get into that. But my point is this. 
in one of the most modern Bibles today, use a text known as the Westcott and Hort text. Some of you might be holding a copy of it in front of you right now. It's been translated in English. The Westcott and Hort was written by two men by the name of Westcott and Hort. Anthony Hort, or Anthony Westcott and John Anthony Hort, I think it was. I actually have letters from these men. I have copies of them. Something I studied for years. I actually have photostatic copies of their actual letters to each other. When they were on the revision committee, they were putting together a Greek study or a Greek manuscript that was going to be used in the 1881 revision of the Revised Standard Version. And these guys were writing back and forth to each other who were Unitarians. You know what a Unitarian is? Unitarians deny the deity of Jesus Christ. And they were writing back and forth amongst each other and talking about their scheme. I always thought that was interesting that they used the word scheme because what they were doing was putting a Greek manuscript together that basically denied the deity. Now, here's my point. Do you want a guy translating your Bible for you that didn't believe that Jesus was God? I don't. <laughs> I just got to be honest. I don't want somebody translating anything. I don't want somebody doing anything spiritual for me that he knows or that we know that the Bible says this and yet this is what they're doing. Same token. Do you want somebody ordaining your pastors if their own life isn't right with the Lord? Do you understand what I'm saying? How are they going to discern and how do you, what do you mean, Doug? How do you prove that? Look at last year at the United Methodist Conference. We had 101 pastors, many of them women, who stood up and signed a letter and says, yes, we're openly gay, we're living in a gay lifestyle, yada, 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 and we want the church to be okay with our sin. And we want to stand behind your pulpits and we want to lead you in spiritual matters. Now, in their defense, if there is one, and there really isn't one, but in their defense, they were being honest. The nut I want is the idiot who ordained them. Who put them in there in the first place? You understand what I'm saying? Because they lacked any spiritual ability to see a problem in that person's life. It ain't just this denomination, believe you me. Even non-denomination, even the one I came from. You know, Calvary Chapel was not immune to it, believe me. We had our own share of knuckleheads. Why? Because somebody laid hands on them and decided that they were something that they really weren't. I can lay hands on you. I can call you anything. I can call you a deacon. I can call you a pastor. It doesn't make you that. At best, what we do is we get to know you. We're around you. You're part of our church. See, this is what these guys used to do. They would bring up a pastor out of their own. Why? Because I know you. I've been around you. I've been to your house. I've seen you when you're happy. I've seen you when you're mad. I see what you do around the church. I see your motivation. And I know whether you're a deacon. Why? Because if you're a deacon, you'll what? Deek. If you're an elder, you'll be elding. And if you're a pastor, if that's what the office, if, if that's what you really need to be doing, that it'll be evident. So often today, gang, we know nothing about the men who stand behind our pulpits. And I'm not talking just about the United Methodist. I'm talking about all the nominees. They're all that way. They all look to these guys, and whether they're scriptural or not means nothing. So who's dumber? Them or the people that put them there? Or us who tolerate it? Mm, there's an interesting question. So once again, 
We stick with the word of God. This is what we should be doing. Look at verse 8. He says, I will, therefore, that men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. I kind of like that this morning because, uh, you know, Brother Ed was, was kind of making a thing about that. And I know he didn't know where I was going to be. But the Bible says very clearly. Now, are you saying, Doug, that we have to pray with uplifting hands? I said, no. Paul just said he would, that all men prayed with uplifting hands. But, I, you know, listen, it's the same with worship. You know, and, and I've always been, when I led worship, and I, I've been doing it here for quite some time now, and when I first came here, I've always been the type where I'm going, you know, whether you stand or whether you sit, God doesn't care what the position of your body is. He cares what the condition of your heart is. And, and, and so I never made it an issue, and I kind of got, I won't call it rebuke, but I'll call it chided. I got chided for not asking you guys to stand, you know. And I, and, I, and I challenged that. It wasn't the only church that I've ever got chided on uh, for doing that uh, because I just don't make it an issue. To me, it's no big deal. You want to stand, stand. You don't want to, don't. God doesn't care. He, he's caring about your worship. Worship is more than the position of your body. It's the, it's the condition of your heart. But in case anyone would argue, i got a poem for you. I want to read it. You've probably heard it before, but I want to read it for you anyway for those who haven't. It's called The Prayer of Cyrus Brown. It says, The proper way for a man to pray, said Deacon Lemuel Keys, and the only proper attitude is down upon his knees. No, I should say the way to pray, said Reverend Dr. Wise, is standing straight with outstretched arms, wrapped in upturned eyes. Oh, no, 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 said Elder Slow. Such posture is too proud. A man should pray with eyes fast closed and head contritely bowed. It seems to me his hands should be austerely clasped in front, with both thumbs appointing toward the ground, said the Reverend Dr. Blunt. Last year I fell in Hodgkin's well, head first, said Cyrus Brown, with both my heels a-sticking up and my head a-pointing down. And I made a prayer right then and there, best prayer I ever said, the prayingest prayer I ever prayed, a standing on my head. God doesn't care about the position of your body. It is the attitude and the condition of our heart. So if you want to raise your hands, raise your hands. I do. To me, it's a, a form of a surrender. Paul says, I would that all men everywhere pray with uplifted hands. I think that's a great encouragement. But listen, does it really matter on that? No, Paul didn't say every man has to. He said, I would. He would have it that way. So once again, it's not a commandment. Look at verse 9. In like manner also that the women adorn themselves in modest apparel with shamefacedness and sobriety, not with, uh, <laughs> we were, it says broided hair. Some of yours might say braided, but it was kind of funny because when we was putting my nose together, uh, my stenographer uh, said, not with broiled hair. And I said, oh yeah, God does not want women broiling their hair. First off, it smells terribly when it's being burnt like that. So no broiling of the hair, ladies. Please, no, don't do that. Okay, with sobriety or gold or pearls or costly array. The, the, the thing here is moderate apparel. Uh, I've been in churches, and, and I have to admit, I've seen stuff that's like, dear Lord, please. You know, women, I, and I've never, I, I have to admit, you know, since I've been in this fellowship, I've never seen any woman here. I don't care how young she is dressed inappropriately. I really haven't. 
And that's a, that's a rarity because I've been to a lot of churches, man. I've preached in a lot of places and I've seen stuff that was just like, and you, you want to chalk it up as to people, well, maybe they're new. <laughs> maybe, maybe they just don't know the Lord yet. You know what I mean? Maybe they're just seekers. And, and, and hopefully she'll seek a different dress next time. And, you know, but the, the problem here is that women sometimes don't realize that you know, and, and I want to be careful here because I don't want to put too much stress on the ladies. The, the fact is, is that, you know, when a woman dresses provocatively, you know, the Bible says that, you know, Jesus said that if a man looks after a woman, even lust after her in her heart, he's committed adultery with her in his heart. And I do think that sometimes, okay, and, and I do want to say this, that sometimes it can provoke that response in men. How be it, ladies? I realize that regardless of how modest you might dress, there's always going to be some knucklehead who's got a problem who, uh, you know, probably is going to see what he doesn't need to be seeing. Anyway, I mean, he's, you know, it's all up here in his head, I guess is what I'm saying. But the key here is modesty is what Paul's talking about. And modesty is the balance between two extremes, really. He says, but which becometh women professing godliness with good works. Just to put the other thing, it's possible to dress stylish. I think my wife does a good job of without looking provocative. And you know what provocative is. And so, you know, there's nothing, because you can do the opposite. Listen, there's people out there who read this passage, and the next thing you know, they're in bondage, okay? They're wearing, they're wearing this strange-looking dress, and I'll tell you what Pastor Chuck said one time, they just look like weirdos. And so the fact is, is what happens? You just draw an attention to yourself. Do you understand what I'm saying? Just in a different way. Oh, but I'm being modest. Yeah, but you look like a weirdo. You look crazy. You know, I just think it's strange. And so once again, you can have, it can be, you know, what's the bottom line? Drawing attention to yourself. We don't want to do that. And that applies to men too, I think. The fact is, is that it's easy. I, I, I used to have a friend in the ministry. And uh, I walked into the church. Of course, I was his pastor. But, I mean, I walk into church, and it was nothing to see him. One time I walked in, and he literally had his hair dyed orange or yellow. I mean, canary yellow. And it was, like, pulled up in these little tufts everywhere. And <laughs> it was. I mean, he had rubber bands like alfalfa. You remember that guy? And, and I was going, bro, what do you, I, and I finally, I told him, I said, you know what you need to do? Why don't you just get a sign and hang around your neck that says, look at me, because that's what you're doing. And you can claim that that's your style, but you're just, you're just drawing attention to yourself, you know, so that's really what Paul's talking about, you know, he says, well, women should adorn themselves modestly as a woman who makes a claim or professing godliness with good works. There's a natural beauty that I have to admit that you see in women of faith. Women who really have a close, intimate relationship with Jesus Christ, there's just something about them, man. You know, they're just a joy to be around. And they just have a natural beauty about them. They're just pleasant. And, they, you know, you, they don't need nothing else, you know. They're just, they're, they're confident in their own self. They, they're just, I just love that. You know, it's, it's good. He says, let the women learn in silence with all subjection. But I suffer not a woman to teach nor to usurp authority over the man, but to be in silence. Ooh. <laughs> now, see, you know, and I know a lot of pastors are going, well, that's a controversial verse. No, it's not. It's straightforward. Once again, listen to me. What's Paul talking about? He wrote this to Timothy as far as how the church is to be structured. Okay, this is what he's talking about. We're talking about as the church comes together, when there's a pastor, when there's elders, when there's deacons, this is the way it's supposed to be. 
Let the women learn in silence and be in subjection. Of course, Paul says unto their own husband in Ephesians. Okay, or, you know, so it's, it's that type of thing. He says, but I suffer not a woman to teach nor to usurp authority. Now, if you're taking notes, you need to underline the word usurp. What's that word mean, Doug? It means to take what is not yours. It also means to be, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Dominant, thank you. It means to be dominant. But it means to take something that is not yours. Now, I've always prefaced this. I've talked to this many, many times. And I know that according to modern vernacular, Paul would be accused of being a misogynist. Okay? He would be accused of being discriminatory against the ladies. And nothing could be more blasphemous and untrue. Because once again, Paul says, Let any man acknowledge that the things that I write in you are the commandments of the Lord. Once again, what is God trying to do? What's he trying to say? He's trying to say that in the issues of spiritual teaching, when it comes to the church, now we know that it's, he's not telling women not to teach because he'll, in Titus, when we get to it, he's going to say, let the older women teach the younger women. And I think women have a great ministry within the body of Christ. He doesn't say that women can't share with men. As you well know, at the end of most of my studies through the Bible, when I get to an end of a chapter, my wife does the overall for me. Why? Because she's just a great speaker, and she loves the Lord. And she shares what she's learned from it. And I think that's just a good thing. And so that's not what he's talking about. A lot of times when, when people read this, okay, they, they, they see it as an ability question. No, it's not what Paul's saying. It's not an ability question. Listen, there's great women teachers out there. If you want to listen to one who really knows her stuff, her name's Kay Arthur. Listen to Kay Arthur. She's through the Bible, and she's teaching this chapter. She would teach this chapter the same way I do. I've heard her do it. Why? Because it's what it says. We're talking about in the church, the pastor, the elders, the deacons. He lays out what this is supposed to be. And he doesn't, you know, I, I heard a, a pastor one time start giving me excuses uh, for women pastors. He's going, well, he said, what about Deborah? I was going, what? That's got nothing to do with it. Deborah was a judge. You know, she wasn't a priest. And she certainly wasn't a priestess. We don't do that. That's a Jewish thing. Believe me, I know. You know, no, it doesn't happen. You know, what about Lydia? What about Lydia? Well, Lydia was there. You know, she was praying on the banks. Yeah, she was praying on the banks because it takes 12 men to make a synagogue and there wasn't 12 men in the city. What's that got to do with anything? See, once again, culture, we are allowing the church to be culturized. And they start to compromise on this one thing. Paul goes on, listen to it. Look at verse 13. He says, for Adam was first formed and then Eve. I heard a guy tell me the other day, he goes, well, some people think it was just a cultural thing for the time. I said, well, then why does Paul go all the way back to Genesis? See, Paul establishes the pattern, the model for the church, because he goes back to Genesis. For Adam was first formed, and then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived was in the transgression. Notwithstanding, she shall be saved in childbearing, if they continue in faith and charity and holiness with sobriety. Listen, in the book of Ephesians, Paul says, that what he was talking about in the book of Ephesians, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church. Christ is the head of the church. Husbands the head of the wife. He says, this is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ in the church. The model is the model for the church. Okay? 
the man is the, the men are called to the pastorate, elders, okay? And it gets confusing because the church has confused it because they have compromised. And I was reading one of a local guy here, a big church, non-denominational, you know, and I was reading their statement and he was like, he got to the elders thing and he says, well, elders are men because Paul says, you know, that the elders should be men. Okay, sure. Then I start looking at the staff page and he's got like five or six women pastors named on here. You know, of course, not the head pastor, but, and I'm going, wait a minute, an elder is, a pastor is an elder. I mean, it's a total contradiction. I'm going, this guy doesn't know what he's doing. I mean, he's trying to appease people. He's trying to make them feel better. And this is how the problem, listen, Paul goes all the way back to the fact that Eve was deceived. Listen to me, ladies, do not misunderstand what the Lord is saying, okay? What he's saying is that women have a tendency to be more spiritual. Thus, they are more susceptible to deception. This is what has happened. Why? Because they're emotional. Men, we just tend to be knuckleheads, okay? And more straightforward, we compartmentalize stuff. Women are more emotional, okay? I challenge anybody, go online. Look up some of the greatest cults and strange teachings in, in the, in the, just in America. And you're going to find that a great number of them were started by women and still are to this day. Why? Because they allowed themselves to be put into positions. And I heard a woman one time and actually was painting her house. I didn't know she was a pastor. <laughs> and uh, this was a bit years ago. And I was just a young man. And when I was a young man, I used to just cut them and let them bleed. I told you that, right? And sometimes people got upset, and some say things have never changed. But having said that, I was painting her house, and we, I was taking a break, and we got to just, she started talking to me about the Lord. And, of course, I'm always ready to talk about Jesus. And I started talking about it. She goes, well, I passed a church. And I was just, I, <laughs> what? What do, you mean, what do you mean? She goes, well, you know, I passed, and she told me to church. And I said, well, what about 1 Timothy chapter 3? What about 1 Timothy chapter 2? How do you get around that? What do you mean? You know, it's not a trick question. How do you get around that? Well, I mean, how can you walk in total rebellion against the Word of God and claim that you're a pastor? You're in rebellion. You know that, right? I mean, I was just a kid. I was like 24. She was an older woman. I probably shouldn't have been talking to her that way, but I was just, I wasn't being mean about it. I was just pointing her back to the Scripture. And you know what her excuse was? Here's what she said. She goes, well, there was no men in our church. I said, so? Well, nobody else would do it. I said, Paul tells Titus to go to Crete and to ordain elders in every church if, if, which indicates that if any was not fulfilling, what he, that he wasn't to ordain them, you understand. He says ordain elders in every church if they meet these requirements. So often, I do not deny the fact that men have abdicated their position so often, first at home. We allow our wives to be the spiritual heads of our household, and we do not do what the Lord has called us to do as men. I don't, I don't, I, I don't deny that in the least. I do not deny that in the least. But the fact is, thank you. Thank you. I don't deny that. I, you know, the fact is, is men have abdicated their position. 
at first at home. And they've done it even in church. So let's face it, ladies, the next time we're all gathered together, regardless of what service, look around. Look how many women are here. Guess what? It's like that in every church. Now, one of the strange things about Calvary Chapel, and I'll finish up here in just a couple minutes, was in the early years of Calvary Chapel, the one I pastored, it was totally the opposite. I mean, we were almost con completely nothing but men, and they were all college kids. Um, but that changed quickly as we became more mature as a church and we grew and all of a sudden, you know, we had the same problem everybody else does. You got more women than you do men. And uh, it's not a problem. I didn't mean that the way it sounded. But the fact is that's what laughing. <laughs> no, it's not what I meant. What I meant was it's, it's, it, we became typical like every other church. But it doesn't negate the fact. Once again, you look at the 101 people who signed that thing last year in the United Methodist Church. Man, a lot of them are women. A lot of them are women, and they're gay. And you're going, these women, it's just in the issue of spiritual things is what Paul's talking about here, that he didn't suffer a woman to teach once again as the pastor. And, maybe, and because she can't usurp to take that which is not hers by authority, that negates her from chapter 3, which is why Paul says, if any man desires the office of a, of a bishop, he desires a good work. Therefore, he must be the husband of one wife. There's no exception to it. And so as we go, they read ahead, and you'll see that. I mean, but it's really the model that, that God is trying to maintain. It's the model of Christ in the church according to Ephesians. You remember, and I'll close with this. You remember that Moses, when the Lord told him, and the people were thirsty, and, and the Lord told Moses to go out and, and pick up his staff and strike the rock, and he would bring water for and Moses did that. And of course, the, the people were refreshed. Later on, Moses started letting the people get on his nerves. And they began to complain. And he was going, man. And Moses goes out and he says, do I have to, do I have to bring water out of this rock to, to shut you people up, basically is what he was saying. And he takes his staff and he strikes the rock twice. And the Lord wasn't happy about it. Why? Because he totally ruined the picture that God was trying. Because Paul will later, as we read through Hebrews, he says that rock, Jesus was that rock, and that rock that followed him in the wilderness was Christ. It was a picture of Jesus because he was to be struck once for all, not twice. But what happened? Because Moses did that, he wasn't able to enter into the promised land. My point being is that the model of the church is Christ is the head, you know, the husband's is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, Ephesians chapter 5. And down at the bottom of that chapter, Paul says, I know it's a great mystery, but I'm speaking as Christ, you know, Christ in the church. So it's a model. This is the way the church is to, be, is to operate. And because, just because culture has said, oh, well, we want to be inclusive, you see. We want to be inclusive. And then you start getting women who think that somehow they're being trodden upon because they can't be a pastor. You know, it's not true, ladies. Let me tell you something. You're not missing nothing. Most men wouldn't want to be a pastor if you knew what it was like. And I'm talking from personal experience. Now, it can be a great blessing, but it's an enormous responsibility. So once again, not saying that women can't teach. There's all kinds of opportunities for women to share and to minister and to do those things. And there's great ministries. That, but as the church comes together, this is what Paul says that it should be. Now, we could jump over to Corinthians where he talks about because I've heard guys go, what about you know, uh, the women prophesying and stuff, you know, with their head covered? That's a whole other issue. 
Paul was talking about just as a gathering as a congregation. Here in Timothy, you have to keep it in mind, he's talking about the structure of the church. This is the way the church, the organization is to be laid out. This is what he's telling Timothy. So I hope that uh, nobody takes that uh, the wrong way, ladies. Paul wasn't a misogynist. He was a man of God speaking by the Spirit of God. Let's pray. Father, we love you. And we thank you for this opportunity that we had to just go through your word. Lord, we just pray that you would continue to give us understanding. And then, Lord Father, that we would reach out to those around us, Lord Father, with the good news of Jesus Christ. We love you. Ask that you would bless the broadcast, Lord Father, that those who were listening were simply blessed by it. And we pray that you would use it to add people to your kingdom, Lord Father. In Jesus' name, amen. Any questions or comments?